All right, friends, well, this morning we are going to be continuing our journey through the book of Matthew. We've been doing a series so far uh, this year going through the book of Matthew. Uh, Today we find ourselves, thank you so much, Dave, we find ourselves in chapters 8 and 9. We're going to be looking at a larger chunk out of the book of Matthew today, uh, a portion of these two chapters, chapter 8 and 9. Jesus has just finished his Sermon on the Mount where we heard uh, some incredible teaching revolutionary teaching, and today we're going to see uh, Jesus now move into the aspect of his ministry where uh, he displayed his power as God in human flesh and his ability to perform miracles, to supernaturally intervene in our world and literally transform people's lives. Uh, There are many people in our world today who doubt the existence of God, who doubt the reality of miracles and the possibility of God's supernatural intervention in creation. Uh, A few years ago, my dad and I and my younger brother, we were teaching at a seminary over in southern Russia, and uh, we had an opportunity during the week there of teaching to uh, speak at one of the local colleges in this city, and they, uh, a Christian group on this campus had invited us to come and do a lecture on the evidence for the existence of God and the reality of miracles. Now, if you recall, in Russia, Russia is a country that for years was uh, steeped in uh, atheistic uh, Soviet educational propaganda. And so many people in, uh, in Russia uh, have just grown up with the belief that there is no God, there is no supernatural, uh, there are no such thing as miracles. And so this was really a hot topic. And we had a packed house at this uh, university as we shared. And we spent about an hour uh, presenting evidence for the existence of God and the reality of miracles uh, both uh, philosophical arguments and arguments from the natural world. and uh, It was a great time. And after our, uh, our session, we had an open Q&A time with the students. And a young man comes forward to the microphone. And uh, he says to us, he says, I don't care what you, be- what you say, I still don't believe in God or miracles. And he says, there's nothing you can tell me That's going to convince me that we're nothing more than a grand cosmic accident, uh, a product of a whole series of random chance events, and unguided evolution. Nothing you can say to convince me otherwise. Well, I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to respond to this? And all of a sudden, my dad just steps up to the front of the platform, and he rolls up his shirt sleeve, and he says to this young man, he says, you see this wristwatch I'm wearing? He says, I went down to a junkyard, found a bunch of rusty, bent-up, twisted pieces of metal. I threw them in a shoebox, and I started shaking it. Shook it for a day, shook it for a week, two weeks, just kept shaking the shoebox. Shook it for a month, kept shaking it. Six months, just kept shaking it. All of a sudden, blam! All the pieces flew together! Started ticking off 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, telling the day and date, all by chance, amazing! Well, this graduate student in physics, he laughed at us. He said, that's impossible. And my dad said, you mean to tell me that this watch by chance is impossible? And yet you'll tell me that this eye, which sees in 3D and color, this brain, a three-pound brain greater than any computer on earth, a three-pound brain with 120 billion cells, 130 trillion electronic chemical connections is all a product of chance? You know, I submit to you, friends, it takes far more faith today to be an atheist 
than it does to believe that there is a creator God who can supernaturally intervene in our creation. You know, actually, I like to tell people it's actually philosophically impossible to be an atheist. You realize that? It's philosophically impossible to be an atheist. Why? Because to be an atheist, think about this, friends, to be an atheist would require that you have infinite knowledge to know absolutely that there is no God. But friends, if you had infinite knowledge, you would be God yourself. And as I like to tell people, it's hard to be God and an atheist at the same time. You know what I'm saying? It's philosophically impossible to be an atheist. See, all the evidence in the natural world, all the evidence of philosophy, demonstrates that God exists. And if God exists, then miracles are possible. And more than that, if God is a personal God, miracles are not only possible, they're actually probable, for we should expect to see a personal God supernaturally intervening in His creation if His purpose in doing so is to reveal Himself to us so that we might know Him and have a relationship with Him. Well, as I said, today we're going to be continuing on in the book of Matthew and we're going to be on a passage of Scripture where we're going to look at some of the miracles of Jesus Christ. These are the first miracles of Jesus Christ that Matthew records in detail in his Gospel. And we're going to look at these four amazing miracles to see what we can learn about Jesus Christ through these stories. Matthew's just finished in the last two chapters highlighting Jesus' matchless teaching. And now he's going to highlight for us Jesus' matchless power. We're going to read today a large chunk of Scripture from the chapters Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 8 and 9. We're going to start out this morning, we're going to just read through this whole thing. I'm going to read these four miracle stories for you. And then I want to spend the rest of our time making some observations, drawing out a few points that we can learn about Jesus Christ through these stories today. So if you would, uh, open up your Bibles, follow along. Uh, the passages are going to be on the screen behind me today. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see to it that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer them the gift of Moses, that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the centurion said, then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, 
he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. She got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. We're going to jump over to chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow's blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. Now, friends, Matthew in his gospel has already reported at the end of chapter 4 that Jesus was doing miracles. But here in these four stories, we have the first detailed accounts of Jesus' power over the natural world. And Matthew chooses these four stories in particular to highlight very significant theological truths, truths about what we can, truths that we can learn about who Jesus Christ was. Now here's the deal. We don't have time today to delve into all the rich theological material that are in these two sections of Scripture. But what I do want to do today is highlight for you three things that we can know about Jesus Christ through these miracle stories that Matthew reports for us. Three things that we can learn about Jesus Christ through these stories today. The first thing that these stories highlight for us is that Jesus has the power and authority to do the miraculous. He has the power and the authority to do the miraculous. Let's consider Jesus' power this morning. You know, all four of the stories we've read here today obviously demonstrate Jesus' power over the natural world, specifically his power to heal. One of these stories in particular uniquely makes this point. And that's the first one we read today, Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, the story of the leper. Now, leprosy is one of the worst diseases known in human history. It's a disease that's still with us today. Uh, leprosy is a disease caused by a bacterial infection. It's transmitted from person-to-person contact uh, due to respiratory mucus. Now, that sounds pretty gross for a lot of us with colds, but hopefully uh, none of us are passing leprosy around together today. But leprosy has terrible consequences. Leprosy causes uh, very serious skin infections, skin lesions. It leads to uh, nerve damage, and it can even lead to, uh, lead to uh, tissue loss in a person. It's a very disfiguring, ugly disease. And for somebody in first century Israel, leprosy not only had these physical consequences to it, but leprosy also carried very significant spiritual consequences For in first century Israel, leprosy rendered a person spiritually unclean and they therefore had no access to the temple or to God. Now, as we look here at Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, 
passage on the screen behind me, I want to draw your attention to verse 2 of this passage in particular. In verse 2 of this passage, the leper says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now what's interesting here, friends, is notice, the leper says, Lord, if you are willing, not if you are able, if you are willing. You see, this is a man who believed and had faith in Jesus' power. Jesus' power was not the issue for this man with leprosy. He knew Jesus could heal him. The only question was if he would. Was it within his will? Lord, if you are willing. Now, we don't know from this story why exactly this man was so confident in Jesus' abilities. Maybe he trusted in Jesus based on the teachings that he had heard. Maybe he had heard the stories and rumors of these miracles that Jesus had already done. But we don't know. All we know is here is a man who has tremendous confidence in Jesus' power and abilities. And Matthew shares this story with us first in his Gospel, the first detailed miracle, because he wanted to make the point that Jesus' power was unique among all others. You know, in first century Israel, they had faith healers. They had magicians and shamans. They probably even had the snake oil salesmen. And I'd be willing to bet you that this leper had probably been to all of them, desperately looking for a cure. And with the faith healers and the magicians, the question was always, if you're able, if you're able. But not so with Jesus. The leper understood Jesus' power. And with Jesus, it was, Lord, if you're willing, if you're willing. Not only did Jesus have the power to do the miraculous, as Matthew reveals here, but we also see in Matthew that Jesus had the authority to do the miraculous. He had the power, but he also had the authority. We see this in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10, in the story of the centurion. Now, a centurion was a Roman commander of a hundred soldiers, at least a hundred soldiers. And if you recall, at this time in Israel, Israel was under the occupation of the Roman Empire. And so Roman soldiers were distributed throughout the territories of Israel. And these Roman Gentiles uh, basically ruled over the nation of Israel. And so this centurion was a man of great power and influence. Uh, he would have been uh, the equivalent of a captain in today's uh, armed forces in, in, uh, here in the United States. Now, the key verse in this story of the centurion and his servant who lies at home sick and paralyzed uh, is found in verses 8 and 9. Let's take a look at these two verses again. The centurion replies to Jesus, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. Friends, the centurion's declaration of confidence in Jesus' authority was based on the fact that he understood that as a centurion, when he spoke, those under his command followed his orders. Because for those under his command, he spoke with the authority of the emperor. And so when the centurion declared to his soldiers, go or do this or do that, 
they followed his command because they recognized that he spoke as if it was the emperor himself giving those orders. So the centurion here is acknowledging that Jesus has this same type of authority, except his authority is from God. In other words, friends, the centurion is publicly declaring in front of everyone present, Jesus, all you need to do is say the word. Because when you speak, Jesus, it's as if God himself were giving the order. Now again, friends, we have no idea where this guy's confidence in Jesus came from. Matthew doesn't tell us where this guy's faith comes from. But here again, like the leper, this guy got it. Jesus had the power. And now we see Matthew highlighting one of the earliest public affirmations of Jesus' divine nature and his authority to do the miraculous. Jesus spoke and healed with authority because he was, as John 1.14 declares, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ was God incarnate, God in human flesh with the ability to do the miraculous. Now people sometimes ask the question today, does Jesus still have the power and authority to do the miraculous today? Does Jesus still do miracles today? Friends, absolutely Jesus still does miracles today. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He absolutely has the ability to do the miraculous. Jesus is still in the miracle business. And many of us in this room have experienced miracles in our own lives. In fact, I'm sure that we could probably be here all day sharing stories of how God has miraculously intervened in our lives and in our world. God still does miracles, even today. Friends, what's encouraging is that God not only still does miracles today, but the good news this morning is that we actually have the right to approach God and ask God for miracles. He gives us this right as His children. Consider some passages of Scripture with me this morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened to you. Verse 11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? If we turn over to the book of John, John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my Father's name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Isn't that amazing? Jesus gives us the right to ask for miracles. Now, friends, while these verses are absolutely true, God is still in the miracle business today. He tells us we have the right to approach Him asking for miracles today. We also, though, need to be careful 
with these passages. Because passages like these have a tremendous potential to be abused and misapplied if we don't read them in the context of God's full revelation to us in Scripture. For example, there's a whole movement in the church today, a theological movement known as prosperity theology. This movement looks at passages like these and it says, well, obviously God wants miracles to happen in your life. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. And so if you're not healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, if you haven't received the miracle you prayed for, you either don't have enough faith or you just haven't been praying hard enough. Friends, this isn't a biblical view of prayer or God's sovereignty. This isn't what Scripture says. See, while God gives us the right to approach Him and pray for and even expect miracles in our lives, we must remember that Scripture tells us that we must trust not only in God's power, but also in God's providence. We must trust not only in His power, but also in His providence. And what is providence? Providence is the biblical promise that because of His love for us, we can know with confidence that God has a good and perfect will for all of our lives. Even in the midst of trials and disappointments. And even when it appears that God hasn't answered our prayers for a miracle. God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. This is where the leper got it right in our stories this morning. Lord, if you are willing, Jesus, I know you can do it. Lord, if you're willing, if it's in your will for my life. See, friends, Jesus has the power, but we must also remember that what we think is best for our lives isn't always what God knows is best for our lives. And you see, we don't see our lives and our circumstances from God's perspective. We don't always understand why God allows the challenges that we often face in our lives. And this is why Scripture tells us that God's power and His providence must both be trusted and acknowledged. Jeremiah 29.11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. When we read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, we are told to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and to lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways, we are to acknowledge Him and He will direct our paths. In the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 6-7, through 7, the Apostle Paul encourages us, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We must trust both in God's power and in His providence. I saw a very powerful illustration of this three years ago when my friends Mario and Suzanne Coviello, many of you may remember, three summers ago their infant son Vincenzo suffered an episode of SIDS. Suzanne found their little baby boy unconscious and uh, was able to uh, revive him enough for the ambulances to come and they rushed Vincenzo down to the University of Minnesota and he was on life support. 
I didn't know the Coviolos at this time. I had only been here at Lakes Free for about two, three weeks. And I was sitting in my office and I got a call that a family was at the hospital and their little boy was on life support. I got in my car to go down to the hospital and meet this family I'd never met and pray with them. And I remember driving down to the hospital just thinking, Lord, you can do miracles. God, you can do miracles. And I remember walking into that hospital room and meeting my friend Mario for the first time and praying for his beautiful little boy there who was attached to the life support systems. And I remember just thinking, God, if there was ever a time for miracles, it's right now. I remember just the week before in Sunday school here, our kids had heard the story of Elijah raising the widow's son and how Elijah laid over this little boy and just pleaded with God to bring him back to life. And I remember praying with my friend Mario, Lord, you can heal this little boy. You can bring him back, God. God had a different plan for Vincenzo's life. A few days later, Vincenzo went home to be with the Lord. Friends, I was deeply inspired in the days that followed as I watched the faith and the confidence and the hope that Mario and Suzanne had in Jesus Christ and in his plan and will for their lives and for their son. This was a family that understood God's promises. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. God will give you the peace that transcends all understanding. It's very interesting how God used that whole story. Just a few short months later, Mario and Suzanne had the opportunity to lead one of their neighbor families. The entire family put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as a result of Vincenzo's story. This family who had become friends with Mario and Suzanne, they just asked the question, how has your family not been totally ripped apart by this? And Mario and Suzanne spoke that it's because of our hope in Jesus Christ. And we know that he has a plan and a purpose, even in the darkest most difficult trials that any of us could go through. And this family said, if that's what Jesus Christ can do for you, we need to know that peace too. And today this entire family has put their trust in Jesus. A whole family for generations now is going to be changed because how God used the story of this little boy in his life. Mario's had opportunities in the subsequent months and years to share his faith with his co-workers and God is doing some amazing things through the very short life of Vincenzo. You know, friends, sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers with a miracle. But this doesn't mean that he's incompetent or he's uncaring. We need to remember that God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. And in all things, God is working for his glory and his perfect plan for our lives. And yes, friends, Jesus does have the power and the authority to do the miraculous. But even in those times when God doesn't give us our miracle, we can still trust him and know that he's going to give us his peace that transcends all understanding because he loves us and he promises that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Second observation I want to make from our stories this morning is this. Jesus also has the power and authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins. 
Up to this point in his gospel, Matthew has demonstrated that Jesus taught with power and authority. We saw this on the Sermon on the Mount. And we've just seen how Jesus performed miracles with power and authority. Now in chapter 9, Matthew's going to highlight for us the greatest aspect of Jesus' life and ministry, his power and authority to forgive sin. We see this in the story of the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. Here in Matthew 9, we have the first example in Matthew's gospel of Jesus forgiving a person for their sins. And Matthew highlights this story as one of Jesus' first miracles because he wants to remind us right off the bat in his testimony of Jesus' life that Jesus didn't come to simply be a great teacher of morality. Jesus didn't come to simply be a great worker of miracles. As Matthew first reported in chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And you know, there's a temptation in many circles of society today, and even in the church, to simply focus on Jesus, the teacher of morality, or Jesus, the social justice advocate, or Jesus, the healer. And while all these things were what Jesus was about... The Bible tells us that Jesus' primary concern was to reconcile us spiritually back to our Creator God. And this is what got the religious leaders of Jesus' day so worked up about Jesus. We see it here in verse 3 and throughout the Gospels. The religious leaders of first century Israel weren't offended that Jesus was teaching great moral truths. They weren't offended that He was healing people. What made Jesus so scandalous in the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders is that he was assuming the divine prerogative. He was doing what only God had the right to do, forgiving people of their sins. And what's especially interesting about this story here in chapter 9 is Jesus not only forgives the sins of this man, but he goes on to re-emphasize and display his power and authority to forgive sin as God in human flesh. He then goes on to heal this guy. You see, friends, anybody can say the words, your sins are forgiven. That's easy. But Jesus confirmed the truth of this declaration by then physically healing this man. And in doing so, Jesus was both publicly declaring and revealing himself to be the Messiah, God in human flesh. You see, friends, it's stories like these that both won people's hearts for Jesus, for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear. But it's also because of stories like these that Jesus' enemies... The religious leaders who refused to accept him as the Messiah would eventually bring him to the cross of Calvary. But yet, even in that, friends, God's will is ultimately done. For Jesus' primary purpose in coming into the world was to purchase our salvation from sin. If you look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Verses 5-10, through 10, Jesus, uh, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for Me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about Me in the scroll. I have come to do Your will, O God. 
Verse 9, he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. See, friends, Jesus' power and authority to forgive sin was the greatest and most important aspect of his life and ministry 2,000 years ago, and it's still the greatest aspect of his life and ministry today in what he offers each and every one of us. Was Jesus a great teacher of morality? Yes, he was. But you know something, friends? Teaching against sin doesn't guarantee its elimination or that somebody will repent. Was Jesus a great healer? Absolutely. But you know something? The people he healed eventually got sick again. And they eventually all died. As will all of us. This is why, friends, ultimately Jesus came to address our foundational problem. It's described in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it's this foundational reality of sin in the world and in all of our lives that is the root cause of sickness and disease, of of injustice and oppression, and of ultimately all of our physical deaths. But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.57, But thanks be to God, we have the victory through Jesus Christ. How is it that we have the victory in Jesus Christ? Romans 6.23 declares, While the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And how can we receive this gift of God? It's reported in John 3.16 that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Friends, have you believed in Jesus Christ today? Have you received that gift He offers each of us? I pray you have. And if you haven't, I pray you will. Maybe even here this morning. Now friends, we've seen how the stories that Matthew focuses on here in chapters 8 and 9 demonstrate Jesus' power and authority. But I want to highlight one last crucial truth that we can discern from these miracle stories. Let me conclude with this. Point number three. Jesus' power and authority are for all people. For all people. Let me ask you a question related to the three stories in chapter 8. What do a leper, a Roman centurion, and Peter's mother-in-law all have in common? The answer is that all three of these central figures in the miracle stories Matthew reports were considered to be outsiders by the standards of the religious authorities of first century Israel. The leper was considered to be unclean and defiled according to Jewish law. He would have been considered a total outcast from society. In fact, historians say no disease in history has carried the social stigma as those who, as is the norm for those who suffer of leprosy. The centurion, he was a Gentile. He was not one of God's chosen people. And the Jews at this time were religiously compelled to avoid associating with Gentiles or risk becoming spiritually unclean themselves. Peter's mother-in-law was a woman. And as such, she had very little social or religious standing in first century Israel. 
And all three of these people, because of who they were, diseased, an ethnic outsider, a woman, none of them had access to the court of Israel in the temple, the place where sin offerings were made the place where only male Jews were allowed to offer sacrifices to God. Friends, understand this. For these three people, there was no possibility of direct access to God as defined by first century Judaism. They were totally cut off by the barriers of legalistic, man-made religious dogma. And what I want for you to see this morning, friends, is that Matthew specifically chose these three stories to report first in his gospel because he wanted us to understand. He wanted to make clear for everyone that Jesus came to break through these false man-made barriers. Jesus came for all people because Jesus is for all people. Friends, Jesus is for you. He's for you. Jesus touched the leper. He associated with Gentiles. He dignified women. And in doing so, he demonstrated that God's love and a relationship with him is not reserved for any exclusive club. Jesus is for all people. He's for you. Have you considered how awesome that is? Have you considered what that means? My dad passed away this summer, and some of you came to my father's funeral. If you recall, my father's funeral bulletin, on the front of his funeral bulletin, we had my dad's famous trademark phrase. My dad was famous for saying to people, I'm all for you. I'm for you. My dad loved encouraging people with that. He'd say, I'm for you. He'd come over, Jason, I'm for you. He'd come over, talk with Pastor Rick, Pastor Rick, hey, I'm all for you. My dad loved encouraging people. After he passed away, we heard from hundreds of people who said, you know, the thing we appreciated most about your dad, he was a great encourager. He was a great encourager. I always just felt so inspired and uplifted after talking to your dad. He always left me with, I'm for you. You know, friends, people ask, why was your dad such a great encourager? My dad was such a great encourager because he understood that it wasn't just him who was for them, but it was Jesus who was for them. And my dad loved reminding people that God is for you. And he loved encouraging people with that. I'm for you. I'm for you. Friends, Jesus is for you. And Jesus' power and authority are for you. When you feel alone, Jesus is for you. When your relationships have fallen apart, Jesus is for you. When you've lost a loved one, Jesus is for you. When your future seems uncertain, Jesus is for you. Jesus is for you. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this fact in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Let me just conclude with this passage. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that, friends? Because God is for you. I mean, can I get an amen for that? That is amazing. God is for you. Jesus has the power and the authority to do the miraculous. He has the power and authority to forgive sins. And friends, greatest of all, Jesus is for you. He's for you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're going through today, Jesus is all for you. And you can count on God's never-failing love. He's for you. And I hope you'll trust Him today. Let's close on a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for who You are. Who Your Son, Jesus Christ, is. We thank You for the truths that we see in these stories, Lord. You have the power and authority to do miracles. You have the power and authority to forgive our sins. And Lord, You do this gladly because You're for us. You're for us. Nothing can separate us from Your love. Nothing can interfere with our relationship with You because You're for us and You love us. You have a plan and purpose for our lives. Even in the darkest days, You're for us, Lord. We can trust both in Your power and in Your providence. Lord, I just pray that You encourage my friends here today. If anybody here is going through a time of difficulty or hardship, Lord, I pray that you encourage them today and help them walk out of this room today more confident than ever than Jesus, that Jesus is for me. Jesus is for me, and I can trust in him. Lord, we thank you for your power and authority. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, Jesus, that you are mighty to save, and we trust in you today. In your precious name, amen.